we can become so fixated and focused on, on, on different desires in our hearts that they can actually take the place of God in our life. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about sex. And in fact, as I've been talking with different people about that Sunday's message, uh, if you haven't heard this before, people are kind of affectionately calling that Sex Sunday. So I'm not really sure what that means, but evidently we had Sex Sunday here a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Last week we talked about love and how the pursuit of love can become like a God. And today I want to talk with you about money and how when we become so focused and so uh, obsessed with money that it can really become a God in our lives and all kinds of negative things can start happening to us and to our relationships and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when getting what we want becomes all-consuming. I was doing a little bit of reading this week about uh, the Yellowstone Club, which is right down in Big Sky. How many of you are familiar a little bit with the Yellowstone Club? Been in the news quite a lot the last couple of years. And if you read the newspaper or have paid attention to what's happened with the Yellowstone Club, you'll remember the story that took place a couple of years ago. It was actually about four years ago, five years ago in that time frame or so, that a Swiss bank approached the owners of the Yellowstone Club and offered them a very, very large sum of money to borrow. And it was a very unique kind of a loan situation. But as we all know now, uh, in the lending world, there was all kinds of high-risk loans available, uh, especially for very wealthy people. And the owners of the Yellowstone Club were offered this loan for $375 million. And as a part of this loan, part of the deal was that the owner of the Yellowstone Club could keep a large portion of that loan and transfer it into his personal bank account. And this was part of the appeal for, I mean, can you even imagine borrowing $375 million? You know, I don't know all of your bank accounts, but that number just kind of boggles my mind, you know. But part of the appeal was that some of this money would be transferred into this owner's personal bank account, and, and really, for all practical purposes, there would be no accountability for how he spent that amount of money. And so he borrowed $375 million, and he transferred $209 million of it into his own personal bank account. This was part of a package of loans that this bank in, in Switzerland was offering to resort communities, and they actually loaned these kinds of loans around the world over two years. They actually loaned $3 billion of very high-risk loans to resorts around the world, and the Yellowstone Club was just one of them. But what was unique about the Yellowstone Club and the, re and the reason that it made national headlines was because when the Yellowstone Club went belly up and they were not able to repay this loan, they defaulted, they filed for bankruptcy. When this all happened, something very interesting and unique happened in Montana that had happened nowhere else. <laughs> you lost your job. <laughs> And lots of people, uh, we could probably take a show of hands, lots of people have been impacted by what's happened here. But what was very interesting was that when they went to bankruptcy court, there was a judge in Montana that did a very unique and compassionate thing. 
Because this, this bank that loaned all this money was the first one in line saying, we want to collect anything we can uh, against this loan. They recommended that they mothball the club, essentially shut it down until the owners could somehow come up with the money to begin repaying their loan. And this bankruptcy judge said no. In fact, the judge stripped the bank of their first lien right and put them to the back of the line so that all of the other debts that were owed to creditors in the Gallatin Valley would be able to be paid before the bank was paid back. The judge actually said that the bank was guilty of predatory lending. And, and it really saved, I'm sorry Randy about your job, but it actually saved the jobs of many, many people in the Gallatin County. In fact, I, from what I can gather, our economy here in this area probably would have been impacted much more had that judge not acted in such a compassionate manner. Uh, many jobs, many lines of credit would have been absolutely wiped out in our area. Now, what's interesting to me is that as I've read the newspapers and, and as I've read this story uh, on the internet and, and, and everywhere else, it's kind of interesting to read the responses of all of the people that were involved in this. And, and I think if I had the opportunity to, to interview the bankers, if I had the opportunity to interview the owners of the Yellowstone Club, they would probably say, I did absolutely nothing wrong. And this bankruptcy judge has said that they were blinded by greed. They were trying to just make as much money as they could in a short amount of time, and they didn't care who they hurt. But in all likelihood, these people would not view themselves that way. They would feel like they were working within the fair limits of their jobs. Greed is something that, in my experience is very, de- very hard to detect in myself. I've shared with you before that Chris and I have made a number of trips to Mexico. Chris's mom and dad are missionaries down in Mexico. And so we have led teams down to work with them from time to time and uh, build churches and feed the hungry and, and preach and minister in the churches down there. I will never forget my first trip to Mexico uh, to work in, in a missions environment. I have done a little bit of international travel, not a lot, but I had never been to really what would be considered a third world country until I visited Mexico uh, the first time and began to work with my in-laws. We were there for about a week, and I could not believe the poverty that I was exposed to. One of the churches that they've built is out uh, in, a, in a tiny little town, a little village out in the desert, and uh, this is a picture of it, if you want to put this up for me. Uh, this is a picture of the town, and you can see there, uh, it, it's kind of small, but you can see that the buildings are small, they just live in the dirt, there's very little vegetation, the sun beats down, I think in the summertime, the temperatures get to around 110, 115, 120, it's a very severe environment, and the people live very, very simple, almost destitute lives. Would you go to the next picture, Kamiko? This is an example of somebody in this village. Uh, this is a little house that actually would be considered uh, middle to upper class 
in this community. Uh, middle to upper class because it's built of brick. Most of the houses in this village are built of cardboard and pieces of tin and whatever they can salvage to build themselves a shelter. Uh, you can see that, that that space is very, very small. Uh, in fact, I was looking at that picture this week and thinking, my garage is bigger than this person's house. And uh, this would be typical of the way uh, these Mexican people live in this little community. When I came back from this missions trip, one of the things that happened to me is I stepped off the plane in Tucson, Arizona. One of the first things I saw was a woman walking through the airport in very expensive clothes, heels, and a fur coat. Obviously a very wealthy woman. And the juxtaposition of the poverty of the Mexicans and the wealth of Americans just hit me in the face. I couldn't believe it. And for weeks after that trip, I struggled a lot with the wealth that as an American I live with every day in comparison to the poverty of people in Mexico. And I struggled with the reality that in America we don't really understand what poverty is by global standards. By global standards. And, and this is what I want you to understand today. If you're taking notes, this is on your note card this morning. This is what I want you to know today. When we're talking about money, is this. Greed hides itself. And I want you to think about this a little bit this morning. Greed hides itself. What do I mean by that? Well, in our world... And, and this is probably true around the world. We all live in certain socioeconomic bubbles. And so when I choose a place to live, I move into a community. When, when we moved to the Gallatin Valley, we chose a neighborhood that we liked in Bozeman. We bought a house, we settled in. And one of the first things that happens is when you move into a community, you begin seeing what all your neighbors have, right? And you begin comparing yourselves to your neighbors. And one of the things that is just a natural thing that happens to all of us is we begin to desire the things that our neighbors have that we do not have. And no matter how much we are blessed, no matter how comfortable we are, there's this natural tendency to want more. And we want to be able to live on a par with the people that are around us. And we have a tendency to start feeling deprived if we don't have all the things that other people have that are in our circle of influence. And before long, if we let it take over our hearts, we can find ourselves becoming increasingly greedy and consuming all of our resources on ourselves. And we may be completely blinded to the fact that we have given ourselves over to greed because greed hides itself. And it blinds us to the reality of what's happening in our own hearts. Money becomes like a god, and we don't even know that that's the god we're worshiping. Most Sundays when I'm teaching, I usually ask you to take a moment and uh, evaluate your own life, whatever, whatever the topic is. And I usually ask you a series of questions. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we have a poll on you version if you're taking notes on your BlackBerry. 
Uh, this morning, I don't want to ask you a question to evaluate yourself. I just want to throw out a hypothesis, a working hypothesis, that this morning I would like us all to consider to be true in our own lives. And this is the hypothesis. You can write this down in your notes. Greed may be a problem for me. Now that's kind of hard, but I hope you're writing it down. And just to drive it home a little bit more, would you say that out loud with me? Would you say that? Greed may be a problem for me. Greed may be a problem for me. If you have your Bibles, would you grab your Bibles and turn to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. And I want us this morning to talk about the story of Zacchaeus. Now, uh, I was working with Kimiko earlier, and she corrected me, and she said the, pr- the proper pronunciation was Zacchaeus, all right? If you were raised in Sunday school and you've been around church before, you may say Zacchaeus, you may say Zacchaeus. How many Zacchaeuses do we have, okay? And how many Zacchaeuses do we have? All right, I think the Zacchaeuses are winning out. Kimiko argued by saying Uh, The Sunday school song goes, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And I said, no, it goes, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. So you see, it just just depends on who your Sunday school teacher was, I guess. So Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, whatever it is. Luke chapter 19. I want us to read this story together if you have a Bible. If not, just listen along. As we talk about this man who was greedy... And he had this incredible encounter of grace. All right, starting at verse 1, it says this. Jesus entered Jericho, and he made his way through the town. There was a man there named, okay, I'll say it, Zacchaeus. There was a man there named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector, and he had become very rich. Now, I want us to pause right there and talk about Uh, what was going on in this story, because it's important for us to understand who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was probably a Jewish man who had become a tax collector in, uh, in, in, in the employment of the Roman government. Now, as a Jewish person, this was detestable because in Jesus' time, Israel was occupied by the Roman government, and Jewish people hated Rome. They had this strong desire for independence. They wanted self-rule, and they hated the fact that Rome was, was just had their thumb on them all the time. So any Jewish person who became a tax collector or an employee of the government was automatically... Uh, a castaway in the society. Uh, and the way the tax system worked, how many of you like to pay taxes to the United States government? Anyone? All right, thank you so much for enjoying that. <laughs> Not many of us. Imagine this, all right? Imagine this. In, in the nation of Israel in Jesus' day, this is the way taxes worked. The Romans would require the tax collectors to pay them a certain amount per person. But in order to collect the amount they had to give to Rome plus collect a paycheck, they were allowed to take as much money as they could grab from any individual. 
So when you talk about what tax bracket you fit into as a United States citizen, in, in ancient Israel at this time, there were no tax brackets. It just mattered about how well you could argue your case with the tax collector. And so most tax collectors were thieves. They were greedy. They tried to get as much money from every individual as possible. And the Jews hated every one of them because of their jobs. Not only were they turncoats in their eyes, but they were extortionists. This is how it worked. Now, what's interesting here in this verse that we just read about Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus, it says that he was the chief tax collector. So not only was he a tax collector, he was a tax collector of tax collectors. And you can only imagine how much people hated him. He was considered by the population at large as a sinner, and he was not welcome in anybody's home. He basically had no friends. And Zacchaeus, being a Jewish person, he was probably raised by a nice Jewish mother and a nice Jewish father, but he had evidently allowed greed to overtake his heart. And the love of money was something that had uh, led him to make this his occupation. This is what I want you to write in your notes here, is that greed is not just the love of money, but it's excessive anxiety about it. When I think about Zacchaeus, I usually think about somebody who was just given over to avarice and greed and, and this nasty habit of taking as much as he could. But the reality is, he was probably much like you and me. He just wanted to provide well for his family. And he had probably become so worried about his own financial situation that little by little by little, he just gave himself over to the pursuit of of more money because he worried about it this is what jesus said in luke 16 verse 13 he said no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and you will love the other you will be devoted to one and despise the other and then he summed it up this way you cannot serve both god and money you cannot serve both God and money. Now, if money becomes a God to us, or if any of the things that we've been talking about becomes a God to us, sex or the pursuit of love or, or money, in the next couple of weeks we're going to talk about power and success and these other things that can become gods, there's three things that happen when anything becomes a God in our lives. And this is in your notes as well. We love that God... We trust that God, and we serve that God. I want you to think about these three words for just a moment. This was true of Zacchaeus, and I think it's true of us as well. We love these gods, we trust them, and we serve them. Think about loving money. If money becomes a God, don't we just daydream about money? We think a lot about how we can make more money. We be, can become fixated on what other people have and become jealous of their income, of their possessions, all those kinds of things. We love this money and we want more and more of it and we become fixated on it. 
We trust money a lot of times, meaning we use money to control our lives. Some people are excessive savers. They hoard all of their money and they refuse to spend it because to them, money is security and it's control. And so, so by, by hanging on to it, they're able to, to control their environment. Some people spend everything they get and for them, spending and shopping becomes like, like a high. It becomes uh, an emotional release. It's a way to control their environment. Either way, you're, you're serving and trusting in money. Some people go so far as to sell their souls to money. They have to have it. And it goes beyond just loving and trusting, and it really becomes a matter of serving money. And uh, this is something that had happened to Zacchaeus. And for many of us, this is something that can happen to us as well. Another thing Jesus said about money was in Luke chapter 12. He said, beware, guard against every kind of greed, because life is not measured by how much you own. Now, why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say that we need to beware of greed? I think it goes back to this idea that that greed hides itself. And Jesus was aware that this is something that uh, is elusive. And we may not become aware when our hearts become greedy. One of the things that I was thinking about this last week that's kind of comical... uh, Many, many other kinds of things that we've been talking about in this message series are things that when we give them ourselves over to them, we know it just like this. For example, if I began having an affair with another man's wife, I would know immediately that that behavior was wrong, right? I wouldn't be in bed with another man's wife and all of a sudden realize, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. Right? I mean, in, in the middle of an affair, I don't just all of a sudden become aware that this is wrong. I know from the beginning. Greed is different. It's very subtle. And a lot of times, we, we become more and more preoccupied with money. We become more and more preoccupied with earning it, gathering it, saving it, spending it, whatever. And we don't become aware that it's become a God in our lives until greed has overtaken us. This is why Jesus said, beware of greed. Let's keep reading the story of Zacchaeus. Verse 3 in Luke 19. It says, Zacchaeus tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now here's something interesting to note about Zacchaeus. He was a short man. Have you ever heard of short man syndrome? All right. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Anybody confess to having short man syndrome? No, no takers. (laughs) He was probably one of these kinds of people that liked to elevate himself in the eyes of everyone, right? A lot of short people can have that tendency sometimes. Uh, and, and he was a wealthy man. He probably demanded respect. But he had heard something about Jesus that so compelled him that he was willing to drop his pride. He was willing to do what only children would do in his society, and that was climb a tree to get a look at Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. 
Zacchaeus, he said. Do you notice I'm mixing my pronunciations? <laughs> Zacchaeus, he said. Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And so he quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. But meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now I think it's important for us to clarify something that happened in this story. Zacchaeus evidently felt completely overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus would single him out of this crowd. He would call him out of this tree and go into his home and have a meal with him. I think we can deduce from this story that Zacchaeus was completely overcome with the grace and forgiveness that Jesus showed towards him. Nobody else in the community would have anything to do with him. They hated him, and they grumbled when Jesus went to have a meal with him. But when he encountered the grace of Jesus, all of a sudden his attitude changed. And instead of continuing on this course of extorting money and stealing and grabbing as much as he could, he did something completely different. The Bible says that he made a commitment to give half of his income to poor people. Half of his income. Now, Jewish law only required that a person give a tithe, which was 10%. But Zacchaeus said, I will give half. And in addition to that, he said he would repay anybody he had stolen from with 300% interest. The Jewish law required that if anybody was guilty of extortion, they repay whatever they stole with 20% interest. Zacchaeus offered 300% interest. Why? The reason was because he had encountered the grace of Jesus and it changed his outlook on everything. Now it's important for us to understand the order in which this happened. Jesus offered him grace and love and forgiveness and then Zacchaeus changed his life He didn't do these things to earn Jesus' favor. Jesus called him out to begin with. And this is what I want you to see. This is in your notes. Grace does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to grace. In other words, we don't come to Jesus and clean ourselves up and start living differently in order to earn God's forgiveness. When Jesus comes crashing into our world, kind of like he did with Aubrey, she was describing how, how God has spoken to her and, and uh, changed her life and impacted her in so many ways. When that happens to any of us, it changes us and we begin to live differently. 
And, and if you're with me this morning and you're accepting this working hypothesis that greed may be a problem to me, I want you to know this morning that by, by getting rid of greed and by giving more away in whatever way that that might come, it's not a way to earn God's favor or God's forgiveness. We give in response to the incredible gift that Jesus has given to us. That's why Christians give is because we have been given so much by Jesus. People ask me from time to time about tithing, and, uh, and I, I believe very strongly in tithing. I believe it's an important Christian discipline. And uh, every once in a while, somebody asks me, well, isn't, isn't tithing an Old Testament principle? Isn't that something that was commanded in the Old Testament? And aren't we New Testament believers, and we've been set free from the law? Lots of people ask me that. Lots of people believe that. Uh, lots of people that I have conversations with believe that for whatever reason, there, there is no requirement to give 10%. And, and my response to them is always this. Jesus said that he didn't come to do away with the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Which means he taught us how to fulfill the Old Testament uh, means of, of pleasing God in better ways. And in the New Testament, whenever Jesus taught on, on giving and money and those types of things, he always taught us to give extravagantly, to give way more than the minimum requirement, and to be generous and extravagant in our giving. The wrong question to ask ourselves is, how much must I give? The right question to ask ourselves if we are New Testament Christians is, how much can I give? And I think Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, whoever he is, he's a great model of that question. He didn't say, what does the law say? I'm going to start living better. He said, Jesus, because you have given me your grace, I'm going to give extravagantly. I'm going to give outrageously. 50% of my income is going to go to the poor. I'm going to repay people with 300% interest. Let me ask you this morning, where are you at in terms of giving? Has money become a god to you? Have you gotten your eyes on everything everybody else has and and begun striving and, and either spending everything you get on all the things you want or have you been hoarding your resources to yourself i want to suggest to you this morning that when you encounter jesus he's going to change all of that in your life let me talk about our next step this morning and then uh, i'm going to wrap this up today i want to ask you the question uh this morning what What do we do if we realize that our hearts have been captivated by greed? There's one more verse from the Bible that I want you to see. From 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, it says this, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that by His poverty He could make you rich. This is a short sentence, but it's so loaded with truth. This is who Jesus is. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus always existed. He wasn't created. He is God. He existed from, from the beginning, from the beginning that has no beginning, and He is eternal. He will never end. Jesus is and was God. And yet Philippians tells us that Jesus didn't consider being God something that He had to hold on to or to grasp. But He emptied Himself of being God and became a human being and offered Himself as the substitute sacrifice for the sin that every one of us deserves to pay with our own lives. That's what this means when it says that although he was rich, he became poor. Can you imagine if, uh, if you were to make yourself an ant so that you could become the savior of the ant world? It's kind of a silly illustration, but that's basically what Jesus did. He is God, and yet he became a human being out of his great love for us. Although he was rich, he became poor. I want to read this verse one more time. In fact, why don't you read it with me, would you? You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you could be made rich. Tim Keller says this, The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel. In other words, if this morning you're aware that you have become a greedy person and money has become a God in your life, when we reorient the way we think to understand Jesus and the gospel, the forgiveness that has been lavished on us, stinginess all of a sudden is replaced by the generosity of God in our lives, and we become givers. We become generous. We become outrageous givers. And this morning, I want to invite you to experience that outrageous generosity of Jesus and invite him to change our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I... I just want to say this morning that I am so grateful for what you have done in my life. Jesus, I know that I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve a thing from God. But Jesus, you came and you offered your own life as a substitute for the death that I deserve for my sin. Jesus, your humility and your sacrifice and your love for me is something that is just amazing to me. Jesus, I pray that as we spend a few moments in prayer, I, I ask you, Lord, to open our eyes to the, to the situation in our own hearts. Those of us, Lord, who have become preoccupied with money and, and all the things that it brings, security and wealth and stuff, Jesus, we want, we want to dethrone that God and, and make you the center of our attention, the center of our love. Would you open our eyes to see ourselves and give us the grace, Lord, to repent where we need to repent. And like Zacchaeus, would you change us into outrageous givers in response to who you are. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, would you keep your eyes closed for just a moment? And uh, I, I want to pray for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never received the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus, I would love to be able to lead you in a prayer that would, uh, that would mean you would become a friend of God again. The Bible tells us that all of us have become selfish at some point in our lives and we have sought to fulfill ourselves in every different way that a lot of times alienates us from God. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're far from God, I I would just love to pray with you to receive the forgiveness of Jesus and reconcile you back to God. And if you would like me to pray with you, I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you in any way, but I would just love to pray with you personally. And if you would like me to do that, would you just raise your hand right where you are? I'm not going to make you stand up or come forward or any of that stuff. I just want to pray with you if you need to receive Jesus. Anybody here this morning at all? If I don't see you, wave at me a little, would you? All right. Nobody raised their hand. So let me ask you this morning, if you're a believer here this morning, you're a Christian and, and money has more or less become a God to you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand right now. I just want to ask you a question. What, what is your next step? Most of the time when I'm teaching, I give you two or three or four next steps that I, I hope you will take in response to the teaching. But I want to ask you, while your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed this morning, would you just ask Jesus to reveal to you what your next step is? Do you need a deeper experience with the forgiveness and grace of Jesus? Do you need to just step up to the plate and say, God, I'm going to start being generous with my money. I'm going to start giving my money away. Do you need to more consistently and systematically start tithing or Do you need to start supporting charities? Do you need to start giving your stuff away instead of hoarding it to yourself? Do you need to start being more generous with the people you love, your spouse or your kids, family members who are in need? What is your next step? Would you pray with me? Jesus, in this quiet moment, I just ask you to open our eyes. And would you show us, Lord, each individual in this room, would you show us how to be more obedient to you? Would you help us to have a fresh revelation of what it meant for you, although you were rich, Jesus, to become poor? And would you show us, Jesus, what it means to be followers of Jesus, emptying ourselves for other people instead of hoarding our wealth to ourselves? Help us, Jesus, to take the next steps of obedience to you and love for our fellow man. And we do this for you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Guilty wounds that cannot be
takes is the glimpse of something free like birds in flight so I'm giving up clarity cause I want to trust where I cannot see and you rescue
Aren't you glad you can trust Jesus? Aren't you glad you can trust Jesus? I think it's easy for us to get frightened. And uh, when I talk about money, I think it's easy for us to get frightened. Because don't we kind of feel like if, if we don't hang on to it pretty tightly, we're going to run out, right? I had an interesting experience a few years ago. I was taking a class working on my, on my master's degree. I got behind and I couldn't finish the class. And I had let it go by so long that uh, if I withdrew from the class, I wouldn't get any of the money back that I paid. And I paid for three credits and I was just stressed out. I knew I couldn't finish the class. I knew I was going to fail, but I knew if I withdrew, I would lose, I think it was like $1,200 or something I was going to lose. And one of the amazing things, the most, one of the most beautiful, gracious things my wife ever said to me is she came to me and she said, Russ, just withdraw. The stress isn't worth it. It's just money. We'll make more. <laughs> it's just money. We'll make more. And it was kind of a simple way of her saying, you know what, we don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus knows where we are. He knows our address. And he's the one that blesses us in every way. Isn't it true? It's really true. All right, why don't you take a seat, would you? Can we just sing that song one more time, John? At least the, the chorus part or something. We're going to worship the Lord in giving just before we go this morning. And uh, if you would also grab your connection cards and drop those in the offering baskets as they come by, we would really appreciate that. And uh, if you've got an offering for Aubrey this morning, be sure you mark that on your giving envelope this morning that it's for Aubrey or for Chi Alpha, something like that. And we'll write one check to her ministry. And so you can, if you're writing a check, you can write that to Connect Church. And also you can sign up in the back. Don't forget about that as you go out this morning. And uh, Jesus, thank you for blessing us the way you have. This morning, we just want to worship you with our tithes, with our offerings. And uh, we just love you this morning, Jesus. Amen.
Well, thanks for being here, everybody. So glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to tear down our stuff and put everything away and head over to FUDS. We'll have lunch about 1 o'clock if you're going to do some other things. Or if you can help us tear down, that would be great. We've got a prayer team that's moving over here to the share room, prayer room. And so if you need prayer this morning for anything, uh, we've got a bunch of people that will be over there willing to pray with you. Uh, and if you need to go, we just want to say God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And I uh, hope to see you soon. God bless you, everybody.